0: Okay, I invite you to take your Bibles, open it to the book of Ephesians. We're back in Ephesians. Um, so we have paused from our study in the book of Ephesians uh, for for a couple of weeks now because we were in Christmas in the in December and then we, we did a mini-series on church foundations and what a healthy church should be looking like and what we ought to build our church upon. And now we're just back into this glorious, what some have called the Queen of the Epistles. Um, just a fascinating, amazing epistle, um, epistle of Ephesians. And um, today we are actually moving over to chapter 2. So we have finished chapter 1. We've made it. <laughs> okay. We've made it through chapter 1, and now we are going into chapter 2 to, to consider and, and study our spiritual biography. Did you know there's a biography about you, spiritually speaking, in the Bible? Well, this is what this, these verses show us. It shows us who we were and what God has done to make us alive in Christ So today we're going to read from verse 1 to 10, but we're only going to focus on the first three verses this afternoon. So let's read together. This is the word of the living God. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, which God prepared before and that we should walk in them. It's the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we humble ourselves this afternoon before you and before your word. And Lord, even now I pray for your help. I ask, Lord, that you will help us to, to really look at these verses and really understand them, Lord, that we won't just brush them off and just think lightly about them. But Lord, help us to see it and to believe it and what your word teaches us about who we are by nature. So that we can understand the depth of your love as well, Lord. We pray this for your name's sake. Amen. So, beloved, we probably come to the, the most famous text in all of Ephesians, right? From verses 1 to 10. And for good reason. These verses really go to the heart of the gospel. It really goes to the heart of what it means to be a Christian. You could say that right in front of you, you have your spiritual biography. You have what you were And now what you are in Christ. This is what God has done to take us from who we were and where we are now. It's like he takes us to the depth, the darkness, and then he takes us to the heights and shows us how high he has lifted us up and raised us with him. So he goes to both extremes. He goes very deep and then he goes very high to show us that. And you could say verses 1 to 3 really is God's diagnosis of what we are by nature. This is biblical anthropology, okay? This is what God says is the state of mankind. So as we look at verses 1 to 3, the question you should ask yourself as we study it, is this what I believe? Is this my view of not just Porch and, you know, my family and of the world, of India, of of Pakistan, those people have never heard of, of America, is this true of everyone? Is this what I believe is the natural state of mankind, and do I agree with that right so there's a sense in which you humble ourselves and say, well this is what God's diagnosis is, and we need to trust and believe that and the reason why that is so important to see the depth of your sin, to see the depth of how dark we are is then we would understand the heights of god's love his love only makes sense in this context. When we really see how serious our sin is, His love becomes unbelievably good. As someone once said, until sin be bitter, grace will never be sweet. Right? Until sin be bitter for you, grace will never be sweet for you as well. And the reason why Paul is doing this here in chapter 2 is to help you understand who the church is. Don't forget the context. Okay? Look at chapter 1, verse 22 to 23. What has he just said about Christ and the church? He says, and he put all things under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to whom? To the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He has just ended this chapter with the glorious reality that Christ is the head over all things and he is the head of the church. And so here's the question. Who are his church? Who are those people that consist of that body of Christ? Only the good people? Only those who are really, really religious? You know that one person in school, like he gets all the 80s the distinctions. He's like at the, the first team in cricket and rugby and whatever. And he's like a Christian as well, and he's like just just has everything. Like he's just the full package, right? You can't beat that person. Are those the only kind that? Should belong to the church, the body of Christ? Well, Paul answers that question by leaving the by leveling the ground, by showing there's something we all have in common. There's something that, that's a reality for all of us. So here's Paul's argument in a nutshell. It, he says this: He says, Since all mankind are equally dead. Think about that. You don't get more dead than a dead person, right? If you're dead, you're dead. That means. Those who are in the church are not there because they were performing or because they were good or because they were righteous, but because God is gracious. We're not saved. We're not part of this body because we were amazing, but because of his great love. So verses 1 and 10 shows us how God reconciled us to himself. And then verses 11 to 22, the rest of the chapter, he shows how God has reconciled us to one another. So there was, a, there was a vertical reconciliation that happened when you were saved. And then there was a, also a horizontal reconciliation. Jew and Gentile taking two enemies and making them part of the same church. Think EFF and the Buddha community. One church. That's what Jesus did in those early stages, right? And you look at that, it's like, that's not natural. But that's the kind of love and the thing that he does in us, right? He changes us like that. But today we're only going to consider verses 1 to 3 because you you really need to understand how deep your problem is. So let's first consider who we are, who we were, rather, in verses 1 to 3. And there are three realities, three realities of who we were, of what all mankind is like in these verses. And the first reality is this, we were dead in our sin. We were dead. Look at verse 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. Apart from Christ, we are dead spiritually, meaning from birth. What does deadness mean? Of course, not physically, but a spiritual death, a moral death. Uh, it's like there's n- you have no taste buds for God. There's no desire for God. If you had to choose God and your sin, your sin always, always wins 100% of the time. You're not neutral when you're born. The needle is all the way to the evil. Our heart inclines itself to be our own God, to worship ourselves, to make our own idols. And when we don't like the God of the Bible, we quickly change Him and make up a God in our own imagination that fits us. That's what we do. We dethrone the God of Scripture. We dethrone Him and we climb on that throne. To be dead means that you are unable to love God because you are unwilling to love Him. It's a willing deadness. You are unable to love God because you are unwilling to love God. It's a moral deadness. It's a deadness that can leave you guilty. It's a deadness that deserves hell. So don't think I'm dead. So I'm, I'm excused. Lord, I can't love you. So why can you judge me? No, you are dead because you love your sin. That's the deadness that is being spoken of here. It's a guilty deadness, Right. And Paul says, it's specifically, we're specifically dead in two things. Did you notice that? What's the two things? He says, we are dead in, number one, trespasses, and number two, sins. Now, there's actually a difference between those two. <coughs> trespasses refers to, think of the sign that says, do not trespass. What's the idea? Don't cross the boundary, don't cross the line. So, in other words, God has given us commandments and laws to say, do not do that. And we say, we transgress that, we trespass that, we say, I'm not going to follow you or trust you. I actively disobey. These are sins of commission. The evil things we do. Lying, stealing, adultery, pornography, sex outside of marriage, greed, covetousness. And the list goes on, right? But the next word, when it says trespasses, the next word is what? Sins. And that refers to sins of omission. In other words, sin literally means to miss the mark. So there's a standard that God is Requiring of you. There's a standard that God says. This is what you should be aiming for. And sin says. And sin is failing in that. You're missing that mark. It's falling short of doing what God asks you to do. These are the good deeds you omit. That's why we call it sins of omission. So the good deeds you do not do. That you're supposed to be doing. What does James 4 verse 17 makes it clear? It says. Whoever knows the right thing to do. And fails to do it. For him, it is sin. Things like we don't speak words of encouragement, kindness, grace, refusing to forgive one another, refusing to use our money to store up treasures in heaven, Right? refusing to love my wife and to respect my husband, refusing to honor my parents. Think, get this, you could be sitting on the couch and sin at the same time. You could be doing nothing, And at the same time, you are sinning because you're actually supposed to be doing something good. You just say, no, I refuse. So trespasses, the evil things we do, sins, the good things we don't do, the falling short of the standard. And in those two things, we are completely dead. And our deadness is elaborated in verse 2. Look at verse 2. It says, in which you once what? Walked. Walked. So you walked in these things. This is who you were. This is, what, this is what would characterize your life. You were doing sin so regularly, so frequently, that you were not just lying. You are a liar. You're not just committing sexual immorality. You are sexually immoral. That's the way of your life. That's your walk. Brothers and sisters, it's good to remember that it is not sins that God is going to cast into hell. God's not going to cast our sins into hell. He's going to cast sinners into hell. Listen to Revelation 21, verse 8. We're getting, we're getting there. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with the fire and sulfur, so which is the second death. And here's the thing this is who we all were. Right? No exceptions. But notice this word as well. He says in verse 2, in which you what? The first word there is once. What's the idea there? That was your past. That is what you did in the past. That's not who you are now, dear Christian. That's not, that no longer describes your life. In other words, salvation is much more than just forgiveness of sins. It's also such a radical transformation that you can say, that's what I once did. That's not who I am anymore. So there's basically three views of mankind. Let me list them for you, and I wonder which one you would agree to. First one, man is well. Man is good nothing is wrong within us in other words the problem here and this is very popular in many psychologies and things so be very careful dear brothers very careful of these things is this that man is basically so anything that's wrong with me is my environment it's my parents why I'm like I am it's those things outside of me I'm actually amazing I'm good on my own but it was all these external environmental pressures that made me to do what I do Man is good. Have faith in yourself. <laughs> That's the first view. It's very popular. It, it, obviously, it, it makes its way into very popular statements I like, trust your heart. And then the Bible says your heart is desperately sick and wicked. Who can, who can know it? Okay, so I'm giving away our. Right, okay, what? Well, but the second view is this. The um, yes, second view is man is sick. Alright, so here the, the people are a little bit more realistic. They say, okay, there is something wrong. Clearly, look at, look at 2020, 2021 and 2022. Just look at these years. Look at the riots. Look at the, what happened, right? Okay, something is wrong with us. But with the right ther- therapy, with the right education, with the right medicine, with the right pills, we can cure ourselves, right? then we will be okay man should just look inside of himself for the cure just find the cure outside of himself and he will be okay he's just sick and of course the third view is man is dead this is the biblical view right man is dead man is hopeless to change himself of course you can change habits of course you can change external things but you cannot change your heart you can't change what you love you can't change what you hate you are dead in your sins So, in other words, we don't just need new makeup on our corpses. We need that resurrection power of Christ to take out this heart of stone and put in the heart of flesh. Which one do you believe? Which one do you really believe? Scripture is consistent. Listen to... I'm just going to list a few verses for you. Listen to this. Jeremiah 13, 23 says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Answer, no, he can't. Or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. Then you can do good if you're accustomed to do evil. Romans 8 verse 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It cannot. That's what it means to be dead. You can't submit because you don't want him. God's word says man is dead. And just like a dead man cannot change, that said, we cannot change that spiritual deadness this is i really think this is one of the effects the stick should have have on you as you really look at this and really see the reality of who you are there should really be the sense in you like lord but lord i then what can i do how can i raise myself up i need a miracle i need somebody from the outside to raise me up And here's the really difficult thing to believe. Look at verse 1 again. Who is he specifically speaking to? He, does, he says what? And you were dead. Do you see what he does? Not all those people outside. Not all those people you see on the TV that, you know, that commits all the crimes and all those things. You. You, and you right here in the pew. You were dead. So this is an intensely personal text. This is an intensely text that should ask you, is this what I believe about me? Right? When you see the evil on, on the TV or you hear of evil news, one of the things that should go on in your mind is this. You should say, how evil am I? Because the sin that I see is is what deadness looks like. That's me. That's us apart from Christ. That's what we are capable of. If God would withdraw his kind grace, his common grace from us, if he would remove the restrictions of law and government and imprisonment and punishment and discipline and these things, if he would remove all of those things, you would not recognize yourself in your natural state. You would not. So that's the first reality, Right? First reality is, you were dead, but it gets worse. Paul continues and says, second reality is, you were slaves. Slaves of specifically three things. Slaves of the the world, slaves of the devil, and slaves of the flesh. So the first thing you are a slave to, Paul says, is a slave to the world. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 says this. He says, in which you once walked following the course of this world. Right, So we're following the course of this world. We're just being carried along by the, the stream of the world. The world is the evil world system which we are surrounded by that constantly ignores God, constantly belittles God, constantly lives lives contrary to God. While the world is really the us that's collective. That's the world. The world is all of us apart from Christ. The world is us without God. The world in a nutshell is described at the end of verse 2. Look at the end of verse 2. It says, The spirit that is now at work in whom? The sons of disobedience. That's your life. Your life is a life of constant disobedience to God's commands. And we have all followed in that. Again, so don't stop your mind from going outside. Think you. Think yourself. Draw the pointers to yourself. This is what we were all doing. From birth, we're naturally inclined to like the things of the world and to hate the things the world hates. We're slaves of the world in which live we can't help it, right? We just kind of find ourselves in this stream of what the world is telling us and, and what, what people want us to be and to believe. It's, we, we're in the stream of deadness. But we're not just enslaved to the world, we're also enslaved, secondly, to the devil. Look at what the rest of the verse. It says, "Following the prince." Of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So that's a reference to Satan himself. He's called the prince to emphasize his authority. His place of authority over the countless demons and demonic systems around the world. Right? He commands them. He, he leads them to fill the world with, with lies and to destroy people's lives. So that is in the air. just refers to that he's a spiritual being. So he's in the air. He's not a physical being that we can look at. He's a spiritual being, non-material. And that he operates in the spiritual world. And his main weapon is lies. He's the father of lies. And he's behind most of the world's re- false religions. He's behind most of the evil world systems. In fact, the Bible actually calls the devil, Second Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this world. Isn't that interesting? The God of this world. And also John 12.31, the ruler of this world. He's the God of this world. He's the ruler of this world. He has authority over the, obviously always under God's authority. God has ultimate authority. But the devil uses, has a real authority. He has a real authority in this world and he uses it to deceive, to twist, to, to bring us away from God. And from birth, we are his children. So part of the slavery is to belong to the devil. He's our father. John 8, you are of your father. The devil. He said that to the Pharisees, but he says, your will is to do your father's desires. And his main objective is simply this, to destroy the unity of the church, to destroy the unity of marriages, to destroy the peace in churches and families and in societies. And what's one of the main things he does? And I love it because in Ephesians, it actually gives us one of those ways that he does that. Just turn over to chapter 4 quickly, verse 26. 4.26 says, it says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And then verse 27, give the devil no opportunity. Do you see how close anger is connected to opening the door for, for the devil? Do you see how close bitterness, unforgiveness? That's the quickest way you'll destroy your marriage. That's the quickest way you'll destroy this church. Somebody hurts you and you refuse to forgive. That anger is there. So the anger, perhaps the initial anger is not the sin, right? It says be angry, but then it says do not sin. And do not let the sun go down on your anger. Even if it's a righteous anger, don't let it become a retained anger. Retained anger turns quickly into bitterness. That's what he uses. Give him that door, give him that opening into your life, and you'll see he will come in, he will destroy your marriage, he'll destroy your relationships. And here's a great secret I've read recently. I just want to share, it says. That great marriages do not consist of two perfect people, right? It consists of two sinful people constantly forgiving one another. That's a great marriage. (laughs) Because you don't get a marriage where there's not sin in. You don't get that. That's not one of your options. But we have to be aware of this. This is how he destroys us. Peter says he's walking around like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. So what, he, what does he do? It's actually, when you look back at chapter 2, what does he do? He says, he's at work in the sons of disobedience. What does that mean? So that doesn't mean every non-Christian you you have seen is demon-possessed. Okay, That's not what it means. Rather, it means every unbeliever, he energizes. He energizes. So we have the sinful heart. We're going to look at that right now. But he also is behind energizing, fueling the temptations, lying constantly. So he's adding wood to the fire. That's really what it is. He's working hard to feel the sin that's already in there towards disobedience. What's a contrast to Christians? Chapter one, verse 19. we see God's power is working in us, right? So God's power is energizing Christians, while Satan's power is energizing non-Christians. And that's why your ultimate battle is not. Firstly, against any human being, Ephesians six twelve. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, against the rulers, against the authorities, against him. So when unbelievers are behaving in sinful ways, they act as slaves of Satan. They act as slaves of the world. They act as dead people. And brothers and sisters, we look at that and we say, "That's us." Remember, this is who we were. This. When we look at the world, we look at people following their own desires, following the lies of the devil. We have compassion on them. We show them kindness and grace because even, even to love our enemies. Right? Didn't Jesus command us not just to love those who love us, but love those even who hate us. For that is us. That's who we were. So here's the last thing we're enslaved to. So we're enslaved to the world, the devil, and lastly, we're slaves of our flesh. Slaves of our flesh. Look at verse 3. It says, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So here's the thing. The biblical worldview is this, that the problem is not something on the outside of you. That's, That's the main problem with trying to be a monk right trying to remove yourself from the world because you're taking the problem with you the problem is in you the desires of the body the cravings of your body the desires of your mind what you think about you just do it cause it's dragging you to to be inclined to do what you want to do instead of what god wants you to do the flesh is really all about you that's the flesh the flesh is self consumed the flesh is only wanting his own cravings its own idolatry it doesn't matter about others and, and what others need they, it's dominated by themselves Galatians 5.19 shows a life dominated by the flesh listen to Galatians 5.19 it says now the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality impurity sensuality idolatry sorcery enmity strife jealousy fits of anger rivalries dissensions divisions envy drunkenness orgies and things like this I warn you As I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So the flesh is so turned in on itself, if someone else does better than you do in their job, how does the flesh respond? Jealousy. Envy. The flesh only respects those who respect them. I, I won't respect you unless you respect me. The flesh responds to inconvenience, to discomfort, with fits of anger. Etc. Right? We can go on. But that's what the flesh does. That's the passions of our bodies and our minds. We're being carried along in that. So, in short, the flesh is not just the God of your life. The flesh wants to be God of the universe. The flesh wants God to bow to you. The flesh wants God to be your servant and not the other way around. So beloved, we are, the brothers and sisters, this is who we were. We were dead in our sins, our trespasses. We are slaves of the world, the devil and the flesh. That's who we were. That's the, our natural condition. But now we might ask. But surely, isn't that true? Is that true of good people as well? You know that grandma down the street that bakes the cookies for the old age home and he's an atheist? Surely... She's not dead in her sins, right? I know so many good people who, like myself, try extremely hard not to hurt other people around me. At least not intentionally. How does this apply to them? How does it apply to those people that, that we really do think are good people outside of Christ? Well, Paul doesn't stop with the you of verse 1, notice this, but he does. It's very subtle, but it's very, very important to see this. He switches from the you to the we. Look at this. So in verse 1 and 2, he says, You were dead in your trespass, in which you once walked. And then look at verse 3, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. What does Paul do there? He switches between the Gentile and the Jew. He says, you Gentiles, yes, of course you were dead. Think of pagan people that doesn't have the gospel. doesn't have. We, we think of them as dead, right? And then Paul switches to the Jews, those who have the law of God, those who have their Bibles, and says, we all were like this. In other words, beloved, it's not just the bad people who are like this. It's the religious people. It's those who are in church. It might be even some of you, Right? That are here very religious. But you are dead in your sin. You can't stop sinning. You find no power inside of you. To just stop that sin that you always return to. So that's what Paul does. The extremely religious Jews. And how are they dead? Well in their self-righteousness. That's their deadness. They were seeking a righteousness. That doesn't come from faith. But it comes from keeping the law. It's taking religion and then seeking in that to be good enough. To try to please and atone for their sins and say, Lord, but I'm trying so hard to cover all these sins that I've done. Surely I must be okay. I'm, I'm going to reach you, Lord, with, with my, my good works that I'm trying to do. But even that, beloved, even those good works you do in self-righteousness is the flesh. It's focused on you. It's all about you. It's not about Christ. It's not about him. It's not about other people. His church. It's not about those things. It's all about me. Even the good religious things you do. So beloved, this is what this text really teaches us. It really doesn't matter how good you try to be. It really doesn't matter how how close you get. We are all in the same boat. That's what he's saying. You were dead, and we were all in that. Religious or not, good or bad, all, without exception, are dead. Slaves of the world, the devil, and the flesh. It doesn't even matter how alive you feel intellectually. How alive you feel emotionally. You are a spiritual corpse. Some have called verses 1 to 3 of Ephesians 2... The free verse summary of Romans 3, right? You will know Romans 3, that long summary of our natural state before God. What does it say? Listen to Romans 3 verse 9. It says, what then? Are we good, religious Jews, any better? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all... Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. You can't get more dead than this. And what is our wage for being dead? What is our wage for following the world, following um, our flesh and following the devil? What do we deserve for that? Well, that's the third reality we need to look at. So we were dead, we were slaves, and now children of wrath. We are children of God's wrath. Look at verse 3 at the end. It says this, it says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desire of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. And then just to make it crystal clear, like the rest. mankind, Paul doesn't allow us just to interpret this for our little context or our little South Africa or our little Africa. This is global. This is who we all were by nature like the rest of everybody, of mankind. There's nobody else outside of that. Is this wrath speaking about God's wrath or just wrath of our sin or wrath of suffering? Well, we know it's God's wrath because of chapter 5. Verse six. It's a very close parallel. to have to listen to Ephesians five verse five to six. It says, "You may be sure of this: that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure is covetous that is, an idol, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. He says, "Let no one deceive you with empty words, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience." The same words, right? So the wrath spoken of here is God's wrath. It's God's holy, personal. Dedicated, committed anger against your sin. That's wrath. You see, the reason why sin is so bad is because it's against Him. It's not about mainly what you do, it's against whom you do it. That's what makes our sin so horrific. God's wrath is not like our wrath. Like when you think of man's wrath, you might think of someone throwing plates against the wall and you think of somebody slamming the window or slamming the door shut, right? It's, it's a, this uncontrolled anger. That's often how we think of someone's wrath. But God's wrath is, remember God's ways are not our ways. He, his wrath is holy. His wrath is good. His wrath is just. And this is what makes God's wrath scary. Listen to this is that it is controlled anger. Controlled. It's a committed anger. He's unbending. What is one of those, those beautiful verses it says, he's abounding in steadfast love and mercy. And then right at the bottom he says, who will buy? no means, no means clear the guilty. Of all the people he could spare, that he might have made an exception to, who would it, who would it have been? His son, right? His son, maybe for my son, I will not punish for sin. But what happened at the cross? He did not spare him. The knife went down. Abraham spared Isaac. God did not spare his son. When he saw sin, he crushed him on the cross. The knife went in. Because of his hatred, his unbending holiness, commitment, To destroy all evil in all forms, including yours. Including yours. That's what makes this wrath scary. And the Bible says this over... There's no favoritism with God. You can't say, but Lord, I was a a pastor, Lord. Lord, I was was doing these things for you. Surely I, I might have had some bonus points, some brownie points with you, Lord. Something. No. You're a sinner. And you weren't following Christ. You weren't trusting me. You weren't clinging on Christ's righteousness. You didn't come with your poverty of spirit saying, Lord, help me. I am poor. I have nothing to give but my sin. You were trying to achieve your own righteousness. I never knew you. God will not spare you. That's what our sins deserve. It's eternal pain in hell for the wages of sin. Romans 6, 23 is... Death. And there doesn't speak of physical death, right? Like what we read in Scripture. That second death. Revelation 6, was 14 to 17. Listen to this. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful. Now, all the people we might have been tempted to be favorite towards, right? Those people in the high social classes. Those people that were up there. Those people... Slave and free. No favoritism. High or low. Rich or poor. Doesn't matter. Hit themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Calling to the mountains and rocks. Fall on us. Hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. And from the wrath of whom? The Lamb. Who is the Lamb? Jesus. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? The one who died for sinners, the one who hung on the tree to save sinners, will come again to judge the living and the dead. And if you're not in Christ, there's no escape for you. There's no hiding place for you. His wrath will find you. This is what his wrath means. And we were all in that position. We were all that by nature. The fact that he calls that children, think about that, children of wrath it's the way you were born it's not something you grew into it's not like something you evolved you, didn't, you were not like a, a child of his grace and now you became a child of wrath no, you were by nature children of wrath that's what you were from birth because we inherited Adam's sin so listen to this if that is our natural state if that is who you really are then there's only one person that can save you, right? must be God, must be him, it can only be God, no one else can raise you, no one else can change this heart of stone, no one else can make this your once life, your once upon a time life, no one can do that except God, except Christ, God must rescue you from you, God must rescue you from the devil, God must rescue you from his own wrath, there's a sense in which God saves us from himself, because his wrath is coming and says, I love you at the same time. So I will send my son for these rebellious dead sinners and save them, make them new. I will take the punishment for them. And that he has done through Christ. What, what, what was his name called, beloved, at his birth? Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Only he, there's only one that was good enough, only one that was not dead, that wasn't born dead. There's only one that can endure the wrath of God and satisfy it. You see, if we are to bear the wrath of God, it will last us forever. But Christ can take it for a few hours and it's finished. Think of, Have you thought of that? Only a few hours, and he says, for millions of souls, he's so worthy, he's so valuable, he's so infinitely glorious. A few hours, and the wrath is gone. So you know there's only one ark that can save you from the flood, right? Christ. Run to the ark. Run to Christ. Flee from the wrath to come. Come to him. Only, there's only one blood of the Lamb that will make the angel, the, the Lord, pass over you when He comes to kill and destroy. Only one. The blood of the Lamb. There's only one escape. Save yourself. Running, Run to Him. Cling to Him. Beloved, what this text teaches us, what this whole ten verses shows us, is that you are actually worse than you think you were, right? Isn't that one thing that you should have felt even as we looked at this? Wow, I'm actually worse than I realized I was. And at the same time, this text is meant to show you God loves you far more than you can ever imagine. So I have to read verse 4 to 7 because this is the hope. You need this hope, right? Listen to verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, Even when you were dead in your trespasses, made you alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Listen, God's love for you is stronger than his desire to punish you. His desire to save you overcomes his desire to condemn you. He has more pleasure in saving sinners than in condemning sinners. Right, Ezekiel 33 verse 11, super clear, crystal clear in the Bible. God finds no pleasure in the death of the wicked. No pleasure. But that the wicked should turn from his way and live so verses one to three is describing your present life the way you live right now the way you see your your passions are dead for god you don't have taste buds for god you don't desire you you don't seem to be able to change then hear this you need to repent of that you need to repent of your sin climb off your throne and come to jesus put your complete trust in him and submit your life to him as the lord of your life the king of your life That's what you need to do. Come to Him. There's only one. And for us, of verses 1 to 3 that speaks of our past life by God's grace, we look at that. And of course, we're going to see the fluctuation of sanctification, the ups and downs. So don't, beloved, if you're a true Christian and you've been feeling like you're unsaved, that's not my intention with you, right? There's the ups and downs. There's even the times where we are caught in a transgression where we need the other spiritual brother to help us, to carry our burdens, to help us with our sin. That's normal Christianity. That's not what I'm talking about. talking about this. This is the life of your lifestyle. Then you need a save, You need a resurrection. But for some of you, this is what your past life was. Then one simple truth you need to accept and believe is that verses 1 and 3 to 3 is no longer who you are. So important. It's not who you are. God is no longer angry with you. That's one of the amazing things of the gospel. That even though you sin, even today, even though you sin in the week to come, God's anger has been, here's the key word, satisfied. It's satisfied over your sin. Because it's been placed on Christ. So when you sin, run to Him immediately. You can. You can come to Him right away. You don't have to first appease Him, first to satisfy His wrath over your sin. You can come right away. Believe that God has loved you. And this is worth repeating. You are far worse than you realize you were, and God loves you far more than you think He does. And stand amazed this afternoon at His love. Stand in awe of what Christ did with you, what He did with that heart of yours. Stand in awe that in Christ there is now no condemnation for those who are in him. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your, your word that reveals to us the, the depths of our hearts, the depths of who we were. Lord, we know that this actually just shows us the reality of who we were. You're not over-exaggerating here. You're not telling us something that is trying to be hyperbole to just make us feel bad. But, Lord, this is the truth. And the truth will set us free. Oh Lord, thank you that this text removes any self-righteousness we might have. Any, any idea that we could be made alive by our own works. There is no way, Lord. So thank you that this text removes all the doors except one, Christ Jesus himself. He is the door. He is the way. Lord, I pray that we would go into the narrow gate. There are few who find it, Lord. Oh, Lord, let us be those few. Let us be those who find this narrow gate. Let us not be of those who would be many on the judgment day that say, Lord, 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 that we not do these things for you. But Lord, but may we be found in Christ. May we be found, may our lives be found pleasing to you as we do the will of our Father in the righteousness of Christ. Oh Father, have your way in us and thank you, Lord, for your great word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Love it, we are going to celebrate communion now and I want to encourage you to think about this table of the Lord. The Lord, this table is available for us as believers, those who are saved by His grace. If you, can, if you can say verses 1 to 3 is my past life, right? I was dead, but now I'm alive with Christ in this table's view. But I also want to say this, is that this is also for someone that has decided to follow Christ. Something we don't think about when we think of Communion. We often think of communion as something that's just between us and the Lord, right? Just something individually. And, and yes, there's a lot of individual elements in that. But what is the first act of your obedience to Christ? What does he say? He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son. Perhaps some of you are not baptized. Perhaps some of you don't want to be baptized. Perhaps some of you don't want to even commit to Christ. Then don't take off this table. Don't partake of this table. Christ says, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. And how does that look like? You you get baptized. You you follow him in obedience. So if that's you, if you are part of him, if you are part of his body, the church, if you have a testimony of faith, perhaps you're a member of another church, that's also fine, then you're welcome to partake. But if you're somebody here that you don't want to be in any church, you just want to live your your single, your personal life, you don't want to have any Christians involved in your life, this table is not for you. It's for those who have committed themselves to Christ. But I want to say this as well. Of course, this is not for those who have their lives all together. None of us are without sin. None of us are not struggling with our sin. This is for imperfect Christians, those who are saved. But I want to, as we think about and prepare our hearts for communion, think of perhaps your life this last week, this last month. Do you know it's already February? It's already the first month of the year is gone. What is the one sin? what is that one thing that you if you that that you just keep on doing? you just keep on sinning, you just keep on failing in that area then then this 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 afternoon is an opportunity for you to to repent. cut that thing off, pluck out your eye if it makes you stumble. Really, communion is like recommitting yourself to Christ. It's like a husband and wife find recommits themselves with intimacy so as we partake of the table we we give ourselves to our bridegroom we give ourselves as a pure virgin to christ with our undivided devotion to him so think of your life what is that what is the sin that you need to lay down at the cross right now and even if you have to do it right now you can still partake so don't think but i have to still do it over the weeks to come no do it now and then partake do it now Ask God to cleanse you, ask God to wash you, and then give yourself anew. Let us be zealous in our service of Christ. So let's use this time to reflect, but also to meditate on his love for us as we partake together. We're going to hand out the elements and we're going to wait for another and then we'll give thanks for the table. Let's use this time now.